you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. Today we will be looking at verses 11 through 15. If you are visiting with us this morning, it is um, our practice to preach expositionally through books of the Bible, and we are currently going through the book of 1 John. Um, The title of the sermon this morning is The Children of God in Love. And for our children who are taking notes, their key words this morning are love, hate, and murder. Last week, we looked at verses uh, 4 through 10. And to refresh your memory, John, in this section of his letter, is revisiting the three litmus tests that he's laid out to distinguish authentic faith from unbelief, or who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Uh, In verses 4 through 10, he dealt with the moral test or the test of righteousness. He has already dealt with this test in chapter 2, but here he brings it up again. But this time he doesn't want there to be any confusion on our part over what he is saying. This time he uses the technique of contrast to make his point. And we looked at that last week, how he's contrasting uh, righteousness with unrighteousness. Sin, uh, practice a life of a practice of sin with a life of practicing Uh, unrighteousness. Um, And so that's what we were looking at last week. That covered uh, verses 4 through 10. Again today, um, it is in the same context. And so before, uh, as I read the text, I'm actually going to back up and start reading at the end of last week's sermon in verse 10, and then we'll move forward through verses uh, 11 through 15. So follow along with me, starting in verse 10. By this it is evident... Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so we see here that John is, is throwing out some very, very difficult things for us to, to look at. Uh, He's making no bones about his point here. Uh, Last week, uh, we were looking at, as I said, the first litmus test, the first test of faith, of true faith, to distinguish the children of God from the children of man, and that is between sin and unrighteousness. And now he's going to center in on a particular manifestation of sin, uh, love versus um, hate. And so that's what he's going to be contrasting today. Last week, he contrasted righteousness with unrighteousness, this, this week he will be contrasting love with hate in order to give us a better glimpse or a better idea for us to examine ourselves and to see whether we be of the faith. He, look, he introduces this test at the very end of verse 10 where he says, um, as, as he's building on the argument that John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil And then he says, after he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, then he leads into the test that we will be looking at today. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
Here again, he's confronting us with this test of authentic faith. We've seen this before. Uh, John has dealt with this back in chapter 2. I want to reread those verses again to refresh our memory. Verses 7 through 11, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness, is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so you see here that John, and we've dealt with this several weeks ago, is already confronting us with this issue of how we we relate to one another as it pertains to love. And so now we're going to revisit that again, but in the form of contrasting, very sharp contrasting with the act of love and the act of hate. This word that he uses here for love is a a common, familiar word to us. It's all throughout the Bible. It's the Greek word agapeo. This is the highest form of love that we see. This is the love of the Trinity. Um, We see that being laid out in John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, For God so loved, so agapeo the world, that he gave his only Son. That That is what... Uh, brought God to the place of sending His Son to die for our sins is that He loved the world. That was God the Father's love. And then we see in 1 John 3.16, we will be looking at these verses next week. He says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And so there we see the love of the Son for us and that He came forward at the, at the bequest of the love of His Father to lay down His life uh, so that we might live. And that is the love of the Son for us. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so here you see the third person of the Trinity as an active agent in loving us. And so this love, this agape love that we're going to be talking about today is the highest form of love. It's the love of God Himself. It's the love of the Trinity. The Trinitarian love for us but it also describes the Trinitarian love for each for the for the, each members of the Trinity, God the Father's love for His Son and the Son's love for the Father and the Father and Son's love for the Spirit and all vice versa. And so, a good way to describe this definition because this is a self-sacrificing type of love, is it not? I mean, can you not read those verse, hear those verses, or read those verses I just said and not see that God condescended to come down to us? He loved us in a condescending way. He, it says of Jesus that He laid aside the robes of heaven, the glories of heaven, to come to us. And God the Father turned His back on His beloved Son that He had loved for all eternity in order to save us. And so we see this as being a, very, a self-sacrificing love. And so a good definition for this type of love is that it is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. I'm going to repeat that again. Agape love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Loving others as the Bible commands us to do, though, is very difficult. Let's not make any bones about it. It's very difficult. It requires 
continual effort because at the heart of loving others is putting the other person ahead of ourselves, as I just said. And that is always a very huge battle. And for this reason, the New Testament as a whole and the Apostle John in this letter never tire of exhorting us to love one another. John had seen the love of Christ demonstrated that night in the upper room when Jesus was meeting with his disciples on the night he was betrayed and he had the Passover with them. He, John experienced this, this demonstration of love when Jesus took the basin of water after he had uh, had the supper with them and he washed the disciples' feet. And then he, he heard Jesus say these very words when he says in, in chapter 13, verse 34 through 35 of the Gospel of John, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. These are familiar words. This is just as like what John is saying himself. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so these words have been ringing in John's ears for years He's been seeing the he's seen the perfect example of this because then John saw Christ's love demonstrated after that when he willingly went to the cross to die for his sins and for our sins, and so this son of thunder, as John was known in the Gospels, became known as the apostle of love. It's said in historical writings about John in the later in the towards the end of his life when he was so infirmed he could not even walk that people would carry him into the sanctuary into the time of meeting. And just about every time they do that, every time he got around the believers, this was the one thing that he would be exhorting them to do would be to love one another. And so this is a common phrase that John loves to talk about love and how we should love one another. John has already reminded his little children of Jesus' old commandment, as I just read back in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2. And he will yet devote the major part of chapter 4 to this theme of love. In fact, six times in First and Second John, he refers directly to Jesus' command that we love one another. So if we get weary of hearing over and over about the need to love one another, we should remember that John, writing under the, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who knows our hearts, he's writing under the, that inspiration. And so we need to examine ourselves constantly because our default mode is to revert to selfishness, is it not? That is our default mode. That's where we run to when we're uh, back to selfishness and not to love. So in our text, John again gets out his black and white paint and does not mix them into shades of gray. He wants to expose the errors of the heretics in the plainest of terms. So he he contrasts the, the way the world loves with the way the church does in this matter. And so... John leads us into that, into the, to the contrast in verse 12. If you would look at verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. A good, way to, a good definition, since we are contrasting love with hate and since they are polar opposites, based on the definition I gave a, a, a while ago about love, we can define hate as a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own interest. Let me say that again. Hate is defined as a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own interest. The essence of hatred is the self-centered bent of fallen human nature that says, I'll help you if it helps me. Or if it's not too much of a hassle to me. 
But if it comes down to you or me, I'm going to look out for me. Is that not the way of hate? When we understand hatred as such, we can see that it characterizes the unbelieving world. The world is motivated by self-interest. Self-sacrifice to the world is crazy. And so we're going to learn some things about hate here in this, in this one verse in chapter, I mean in verse 12. And he actually lays out four marks of hatred of the world and hatred. And so I want to go through these one by one. So if you want to flip back in your Bible, I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 4. Because this is really the one time that John makes a direct reference to the Old Testament. And so we want to go back and look exactly what happened with Cain. Because he brings Cain up as a prototype of hate. And so we want to look at that. I want to read through the verses in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 12. While you're turning there, just to set the contrast of what's, what, where we are at this point, we all know that in, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see the creation account. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall. We see Adam and Eve uh, disobeying God's command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we see the curse of God being given to them individually. Uh, we see God cursing Satan himself. But even in the midst of that, we see God giving the promise of the coming Messiah, even as he's cursing uh, the creation. He's giving the promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15. And we looked at that last week. But, but that's what's going on. And then uh, at the very end of Genesis 3, we see God uh, banishing Adam and Eve from the, from the garden. Uh, they, they, were no, they were no longer righteous. They were no longer in right standing with him. Their sin had entered into the picture now, and so no longer could they dwell with God in the garden. So he banished them from the garden. So they go out into the surrounding areas and begin their lives uh, in their fallen states. And so then we pick up many years later, or maybe not too many years later, but we see uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, and if you do, not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And then it goes on to talk about Cain's banishment and how God, even in the midst of punishing Cain, he even protected him for the rest of his life and would not allow people to kill him. But nonetheless, Cain has been put out. And so we see here uh, the, the very, and, and this is, this, this is interesting. The very first person who was born on the earth was a murderer. He was, he's, he's typified of being a person of hate and anger. And, it's, and we, we see what's going on here is that these two brothers, 
are supposed to be bringing their offerings to God. And so we know in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, uh, God's commentary on this says, Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith. And since faith is always a response of God's revelation, we must assume that God had revealed in some way to Cain and Abel what was acceptable sacrifice and what he required. And so we deduce from that that, that, that Abel brought what God wanted, but Cain did not. And so, but even in the midst of that, that story I just read, we see the mercy of God in dealing with an erring, an erring brother, an erring person. He's, he's pleading with Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face falling? Will, if, if you do right, will you not be accepted? Don't worry about it, Cain. I'll give you another shot. You can, you can get this right. Turn it around and do it right, and you will be accepted. And the, but Cain refused to heed uh, the voice of God. And then you see the sarcasm coming out in Cain when God asked him where his brother was after he killed him. And he says, I don't know. Am I his keeper? I mean, can you see the sarcasm coming out? And he's speaking directly to God. And so Cain, uh, from the very beginning, was, was a person uh, that, that his life was characterized by hatred. And so when this situation arises and, and, um, and he's opposed to, uh, to God in this way, he takes it out by destroying the life of his brother. In Jude chapter 1, when Jude is talking about pronouncing woe on false teachers, he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. And so Cain has now got a name as being a person of anger, a person of hatred a person who, who lacks grace. And so we see that, that, that Cain uh, is uh, the, typified, that, that hatred is typified in, in Cain. That he is in, how many in here has ever heard of anybody named Cain? I haven't. <laughs> and so um, I think that's a good, a good uh, way of looking at this, is that uh, Cain is not looked favorably uh, by anyone on the world, and, and that's because of what he did here. The second thing we see here in this passage about hatred is that Hatred originates with the devil. It says that Cain was of the evil one. John's reference to the murderer um, in, in, in verse 15 recalls Jesus' words in, eight, for, in John 8.44 where he states that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And so if we think that either hatred or love find their roots in the human heart, there again we have not gone deep enough. Uh, hatred finds its source in the devil whereas love originates with God. But this is not to blame the devil and absolve, to absolve sinful people of their responsibility. In other words, we can't just say the devil made me hate somebody or made me angry. But nonetheless, the roots of that finds itself in Satan himself because, as I read last week, the passage of Satan's rebellion, that was, a, that was behind all that was his hatred for God. And so we see that, that Cain here was, of, was one of his children. He was of the evil one. He was of Satan. The third thing we see here about hatred is that it divides people and it may actually result in the taking of life because it says here that Cain murdered his brother. The Greek word that is translated murderer literally means to slit the throat or butcher. It was a term that was used to butcher cattle with. And so it's a pretty gruesome word. So at best, hatred becomes indifference or avoidance of another person causing separation and distance in relationships but at worst, selfishness and hatred can become murder. Uh, we all know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was talking about anger, he was confronting the Pharisees on their misunderstanding of the law. They were thinking that, well, if I actually don't actually go through like Cain did and actually kill somebody, then I have not violated that commandment that, to not murder. That Jesus takes it to a new level, a new level when he says, murder start does not start in the extremities. It's not 
forced on us by external circumstances. It starts in the heart and comes out. And so if there's anger in your heart, then that could lead to murder. And so I think we, we should see it that way because the people that are in the prison today, the people who have committed murder, they didn't just up and one day get up and just go off and kill somebody. There was something in their heart that was wrong. There was hatred and bitterness that was not dealt with. And so uh, in that sense, we have to be very careful of our own hearts, of how far hatred can take us. And then the last thing we see in this particular verse about hatred is that it's motivated by personal sin. Because uh, God says, or, or John says, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. See, it was not because Abel was a scoundrel or he was doing some evil against God or against Cain. Rather, Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's were actually righteous. He even says that. Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil. So the root of Cain's slaughter of his brother was that Cain, Cain was in rebellion against God. So while hatred may be directed to other people, it may find its, its rest towards other people, invariably the hateful person is really at odds with God. That is where it's coming from. That's what it's, what it's focused towards. This is an important point because when someone becomes angry and acts out on it, they're really only letting out what is already in their heart. Do you understand that concept? In other words, no, we can't say that other people make us angry or make us hate somebody else. We cannot say that because if anger and hatred is not in our hearts, it will not come out. In our counseling training, we've learned an illustration of using a, t- a tube of toothpaste. If you take a tube of toothpaste and squeeze it, how many in here have ever done that and had grape jelly come out or iced tea? No. What comes out when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste? Toothpaste. And so that's the same with us. When you apply the pressure to the tube of toothpaste, the toothpaste comes out because that's what's in there. When we are pressured from outside, from circumstances and from trials of life and from actual people, what happens? What, what's in there comes out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we got, we've got to see this as much, more, much deeper than just circumstances around us and those people that happen to be in our lives. It's our heart that is where the battle must be waged. And so we have to see it in that manner. And so we see here that hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn Cain. It originated with the devil. It divides people and may result in murder. And it is motivated by personal sin or rebellion against God. And this is, the way that the world, this is the way of the world. Then John, then John says in verse 13, after he describes hatred and after he uses Cain as the prototype of the world, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the wor- that the world hates you. Now, other translations have the word if here, if the world hates you. But the word hated is in the present indicative, which simply means that it's a fact that is having continuous ramifications. In other words, John is not saying that the world may hate you. He is saying it is a fact that the world hates you, and it does so all the time. Cain is the prototype of this world, and the devil is the prince of this world, as he was the spiritual father of Cain. It is therefore to be expected 
that the spiritual descendants of Cain will continue and hate the spiritual descendants of Abel. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this verse, says, The great serpent himself reigns as the god of this world. Wonder not, then, that the serpentine world hates and hisses at you who belong to that seed of the woman that is to bruise the serpent's head. That's a good point. Jesus told his disciples when he was talking to them in the upper room that night, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, because but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And why does it do that? Why does the world hate you? Paul tells us in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so we see that's the source of the world's hatred. It's at, it's, it's at hostility. It's at enmity with God. It's at war with God. And so when we identify ourselves as being one of his children, why should we be surprised when the world wants to war with us? We should not. John is saying, do not be surprised, brothers. Apparently some of them were concerned and were, and were wondering, why do these people hate us so much? Well, John just needed to remind them. What did Jesus tell us before he left? The world's going to hate it hates me, and it's, and it's about to show you uh, the most heinous hatred it has when it's going to send me to the cross to die. And so don't be surprised when the world chooses to choose you likewise, treat you likewise. But you may be thinking, aren't there examples of love on the part of unbelievers? While it may be true that most unbelievers are motivated by selfishness, we often see examples of unbelievers who, who sacrifice themselves on behalf of others. We've seen that. We see unbelieving parents who give themselves selflessly on behalf of their children. We hear of those who donate an organ so that a family member or even a perfect stranger might live. We hear of soldiers who willingly die to protect their comrades. And so the, do these examples contradict John's word here when he says the world will hate us or the world is incapable of loving? I believe that what we see here in these examples are, are not a contradiction of what John is saying, but a, but a definition of God's common grace to all the earth. You know, Jesus or God says, I send, I send my reign on the just and the unjust. And so God loves the whole world generally. Okay, in a general way, we are all created in the image of God. And so in that way, God does love and bless the world to be able to, to do the things that, that, that we should be doing for God. In, in that instance, love. But nonetheless, it is not characterized by faith and it is not coming from, a, from the heart of one who truly loves God. And so when John is saying that don't be surprised that the world hates you, he's speaking generally here. He's not saying that the world is incapable of any type of love. But the point must be made. When you make a distinction and when you bring Jesus Christ's name in it, what will happen usually? The world will hate you for it. Because if you walk in the world and if you act like the world, then Jesus, is, Jesus will say, well, then they're really not going to hate you. But if you're one of mine and you, and you claim my name and you live the way I asked you to, don't be surprised. They will hate you. Because they hated me. And so that is still true today. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, Do not think 
that I, came, that, I, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And so you see, when we walk with Christ, when we're identified with Christ, those divisions may even cut down familial lines. They may even divide homes. And I think we all have seen that before, maybe in, in our extended families or in other ways. We've seen that actual happen. And so Jesus saying, don't be surprised. This is the normal way of things. When you identify yourself with me, when you walk according to my commandments, the world will hate you because it is, it is ultimately at enmity with God because it cannot walk that way. It refuses to walk that way. And so they would rather you give that up than, than the world try to walk and emulate Christians. And so when they see that, when they see Christians trying to live for Christ, they hate it because their consciences are screaming to them that God demands that same thing of me and I refuse to do it because I am in rebellion against him. And so we need not be surprised that the world hates us at will. And then finally we see here in verses 14 and 15, here again we get back to where we started. The characteristics of the two kingdoms. Remember I said last week that there are only two groups of people on the earth. You have the children of God. You have the children of Satan. There are no other groups. There are no halfway points in between the two. You were either of one or you were of the other. And you will bear the the characteristics of the one that you are a part of. And so that's the one thing that John is teaching us throughout this section. He says in verse 14 and 15, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here he is. He's laying out the characteristics of the two kingdoms, the two families, the children of God. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Here John is giving a passing reference to the supernatural nature of the new birth. When John says that Christians are those who have passed from death to life, he is indicating that becoming a Christian involves something spectacular like a resurrection. No one can grow into Christianity. No one can be born into it in the physical sense. To become a Christian involves nothing short of a divine recreation by which God of his own free will implants spiritual life within a person who before was dead spiritually. John has spoken of this in his gospel in chapter 5, verse 24, or Jesus had, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So you see, that's, that's a, the epitome of the new birth. It's not something that we just actively walked into. We have passed into it. We're passive. God has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and pulled us over and placed us into the kingdom of his Son the kingdom of God. And so in that sense, we have passed, passed from death to life because the characteristics of the, of the kingdom of Satan is what? Death, spiritual death. They are in enmity with God. The characteristics of, of the kingdom of God is life, life eternal in Jesus Christ. And then the great passage in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking to you believers 
in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, great contrast, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so that is the beauty of what John is saying to us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It is not as a result that we love that we pass from death to life. Because we have passed from death to life, now we love the brothers. Because we have the same uh, character that our Savior, our, 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 our brother has, our Heavenly Father has, that loves unconditionally. Now we have that. We have that access. And now we, for the first time in our life, we can see the other person. We can put others above ourselves. That's what John is saying here. That is the characteristics of the children of God. That is the litmus test that we must be faced with. Do I love the brothers? Is that the pattern of my life? And then he talks about the children of Satan. The end of verse 14 and 15, he says, Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here again, the verbs... Throughout this section, but especially here or in the present tense, which I said last week means continuous or repeated action. That's the way of life. That's your normal walk is to be a murderer if you do not love. Whoever does not love abides in death. That word abides, as we said, means to, to remain. So you, you are in there. You are, you are abiding in death. But notice the parallel there. He says, uh, whoever does not love abides in death. Well, what's the difference between does not love and hate? According to John, nothing. Because he says, whoever does not love abides in death. And he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so here, there is, it's, it's black and white. It's simple. We have to see it clearly. We have to see that the absence of love is hate. We cannot, we cannot dwell somewhere in the middle to where we just tolerate people or we like people. We don't hate them. We like them, but we don't really love them either. That's foreign to Scripture. Another point of hatred here that John is confronting us with is that it, it, hatred is the evidence of spiritual death. A normal pattern of life that expresses itself in hatred towards especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, but even, even so far as it goes beyond that. Because God did not leave us there to say, love the brothers. He also said, love your enemies. And so we, the challenge here is very deep. We have to examine ourselves and see what is the characteristic of my life? What is my normal pattern of walk? 
Is my life characterized by love or is my life characterized by hate? And so that is what John is confronting us here. He's showing us the two kingdoms. The one, the kingdom of God is characterized by those who have passed from death to life. Who are able now to love one another. And the characteristics of the children of Satan, the kingdom of Satan, is that those they do not love, they actually hate, and they abide in death. So what can we do with this? Let's make some concluding observations. Let's just look at the world in general, the world of mankind, broad. As I said, there are only two groups of people in the world. And John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. But I want to challenge you also that we should also not be surprised that the world acts like the world. I think a lot of times we as Christians get on our high horse and we expect the world to act like us. And we forget We forget that the reason that we're able to do this now is not because we were enlightened or because we got it or because I trained for it. No, the reason I'm able to love now is because I passed from death to life. God has done a miracle in me or I would be the most hateful person on the planet. I am no different than Osama bin Laden. The seeds of hate are just as strong in me as they are in him. And so the only reason that I am not him is because God has done a work in me. But we have to guard ourselves that we don't become so arrogant and prideful that we think the world should act like us and we get mad at them when they don't. We have to realize that the world is going to act like the world. Now, I'm not saying we don't oppose evil. But I'm saying, how do we oppose that? Do we hate the ones that are doing the evil? I don't think that's what Christ tells us to do. These are the people that we need to be reaching out to for the gospel. And if, we're, and if we're building up battle lines all the time, then they're not going to listen to us. And so we have to be careful there. We have to realize that this is a great battle between the kingdom of God and between the kingdom of Satan. And we know the, we know the end result. We know that the kingdom of God will prevail. And it is prevailing. It is growing every day. But we have to realize and be humble enough to know that what I have now, I was given. And I did not attain of my own intellect and knowledge. And so we have to see the world as the harvest that Jesus said it is. We don't want to act like them. We're not going to go run with them in their pursuits of evil. But we're not going to ignore them. We're going to love them. We're going to reach out to them with the good news of the gospel because we want them to pass from death to life. And we know that is God's sovereign prerogative to do that. But we are the agents that He gets that message out with. And so if, we, if, if our nose are turned up to people who, like, who, who want us to uh, kill our babies and are pro-abortion and who are pro-pornography and all these things, if all we do is look down on these people as being nothing more than the personification of evil, then we will not reach them with the gospel. Because we think they are beyond the gospel. And that is when we have become the most arrogant person that we can be. And so we have to humble ourselves and realize that we 
have passed out of death into life, or yet we would be with them. And our hearts have to go out to them with the gospel. Next, let's bring it down some to the church. The universal church is made up of all of the children of God all over the world. Everywhere, all over the planet today, if a person is born of, the, is born of God, has the seeds of the Spirit in him, the Spirit of God is riding in his heart, he is a part of the body of Christ. He is a member of the universal church. The local church, is, which is what this is, is a local manifestation, a visible representation, hopefully, of the universal church. And that's why I said last week that that is, that is why it's so important that, we, that we, we make these strong demands of what it means to be a Christian. It's because Jesus said, by this they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so a church must be able to, must be to the best of our ability made up of people who are part of the universal church. Now I know that we can't see men's hearts. And so that's not going to be as perfect as it can be. But we should realize that when we name the name of Christ, we are saying something. And that is an exclusive claim that we are saying. A church will only be able to accomplish great things for God's glory to the extent its members love each other and are actively engaged in practicing that love. There will be conflict, even in the local church. Pastors will disappoint members. I know I have disappointed many of you in this church. I know that. I know that in 13 years, Pastor Mose disappointed somebody in this congregation. I know that Pastor Dave and Pastor Nick and Pastor Russ have maybe are and will disappoint people in this church. I know that Pastor Robert Cole and Pastor Glenn Burnson has disappointed people in this church. I know that for a fact. I know that some of you have disappointed me. And some of you have disappointed some of these other guys that I've talked about. I know that for a fact. I know that some of you have disappointed some of you and vice versa, in each other. You have disappointed one another. I know that for a fact. And so, the, see, the thing is, is that there will always be conflict. There will always be source, times of contention to where we disappoint one another. We actually sin against one another because we are all fallen and we still battle our sinful nature. But you see, the key is here is not to train or try to work yourself into a place to where you, where there will be no conflict because that is impossible. There is no way we'll, we will ever attain that goal. It is futile to even try. We would do better rather to train ourselves to respond in a godly way to conflict, trials, and circumstances rather than focus our energy on avoiding these things. That's the key. That's what makes us a dynamic church. That's what makes us people look at us and know that we are Jesus' disciples. Because not that we're fake and hypocritical and we never have problems and we just smile at each other 
No, we are real human beings that sin against one another every day. But the key is not that we try to get to a place where we no longer do that. The key is how do we respond when it happens? And if we respond in a way that Christ responded to the people that sinned against him, then we will be his true disciples. And we will be honoring and glorifying him, and we will be blessing ourselves. And we will be a dynamic church. James says, Count it all joy when, not if, when you meet various trials. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, God's sending those trials into your life. He's not causing you to sin against each other. He's not causing me to sin against you or you against me. But He's allowing all these things to happen. You know why? Because He is involved in sanctifying us and making us more like Christ. And He is going to do it not in spite of trials, but through trials. Through these disappointments. And so that's how we will become a dynamic church. Is when we love one another in spite of what's happening. Not in a love that just overlooks everything and just sticks our head in the sand. But while we are confronting one another and helping one another in their individual sins and and holding each other accountable, we are being patient and kind and merciful and gentle. And so if we're actively involved in that, then we are being a dynamic church, the church that we read about in Acts 2. And finally, let's look at the individual, me and you. Each individual professing believer in God is responsible before God to be engaged in the minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day, year-by-year pursuit of godliness in his or her own life. We must all be in the business of progressive sanctification. While John's words are an evidential test of a person's spiritual condition, they are also an exhortation to those who profess to believe in Christ. As believers, we have to battle the hatred that stems from our own selfishness. While on the one hand, spiritual growth results inevitably from spiritual life. That's a fact. On the other hand, it does not happen without our effort and our constant effort. Whenever the deeds of the flesh rear their ugly heads, we must put them to death and replace them with the fruit of the Spirit. Put off the deeds of the flesh, and you're not done yet. You've only done half the work. That's really not the hardest part of it either. You put off the deeds of the flesh, and you put on the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, because we don't live in a vacuum. We're going to act, again, what's in our heart, and you've got to reshape your heart. James in chapter 1 says in verse 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we know that the world is characterized by constant anger and hatred. That's what James is teaching us here. But we also know that we battle these same tendencies. Because we were part of the world and we passed out of that world, but yet we still have a part of it with us. We still have that sin nature that we battle every day. And so James is telling us here, he's giving us a formula on how to win the day, to not give in to your hatred. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We usually turn it around, don't we? We get angry 
Then we speak. Then we say, what did they say? I mean, that's the normal pattern of, uh, of, our, of our life, right? That's what we have to combat. We have to follow God's plan here. We have to be quick to hear. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Think the best of them. Slow to speak. Because why? Because there are seeds of evil in our heart that we have to, be, we have to grab that. Take it to captive to the obedience of Christ. Reshape it in graciousness and merciful and gentleness. And then speak. And then what does that create? Slow to anger. That's the key. I want to finish up by reading chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If you would turn there, we won't be back in 1 John. I'm going to finish with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We all know this to be the love chapter. And I think in many ways we've commercialized it so much that it's kind of taken away the real meaning of it. Um. It is a good place to go to, as far as the love of your marriage, to, to show you what love and marriage looks like. But to really know what, what Paul was writing here, he was writing to a church that was really messed up. They were in, very, they were in a lot of chaos. They were have a lot of disagreements, a lot of confusion, a lot of conflict. And so John, even in the midst of talking about specifically the gifts of the Spirit in verses 12 and 14, he pauses for a parenthesis in verse 13 to get their minds shaped right, to get them thinking right. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I, gain, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So you see here he's teaching us about the priority of love. All these other things that we might do in the flesh are nothing if they are not grounded in love. He goes on, verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. My gosh, that's a mouthful. Have you ever meditated on just those three verses and tried to apply it? I, I double-dog dare you to memorize these three verses and then try to apply them every day of your life and see what happens in your relationships. If we're patient and kind, if we don't envy and boast, if we're not arrogant, if we're not rude, if we don't insist on our own way, if we're not irritable or resentful, if we don't rejoice at wrongdoing, if we rejoice with truth, if we bear things and believe things and hope things, we're going to be some great people to be around. Because you know why? Because I'm not going to be thinking about myself. I'm going to be thinking about you. And you're going to be thinking about me and we're going to be thinking about each other. Because we're putting the other above ourselves. Because that, these verses describe the character of true, agape, unconditional love, the love of God. And then he says, finally in verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. See what he's saying here? He's, he's laying out the superiority and the eternality of love. He says here, the, the faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. All this other stuff's going to pass away. All this other stuff that we're so concerned about is going to pass away. Even faith and hope will pass away because they will be realized. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When Christ returns and when we are in with Him in heaven, we will no longer have to have faith. We will see Him as He is. Our faith will be realized. Hope is, is by, by definition, deals with the future, right? We're hoping for the future. We're hoping for something good to happen. And so there's nothing greater than could happen to us than the return of Christ and us going into eternity with Him. Hope will be realized. But love will go with us. Do you see that? We exercise faith. We walk by faith. We live, we live with hope. But when we work and act and live and love and build on that, that is something that we carry with us into eternity. It lasts forever. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. His love will be carried with us into eternity. That's great. That is something. Why would we not invest in that now? Why do we invest in all these superficial things that have no eternal weight? If we invest in love, if we love one another, then Jesus, then the world will know that Jesus is our brother, that we are His disciples. And then God... will bring people to Himself because that's how He did it to me. He brought me to Himself because somebody loved me enough to share the Gospel with me. Now, I know God is sovereign, but somebody loved me enough to share the Gospel with me. We love you. The pastors love you very much. I love you very much. And I hope you love one another. And I hope in the days coming that we will begin to act on that and live in that. And no matter what comes at us, we will know how to act. We will not have to scratch our heads. We will know exactly how to, how to receive it, how to deal with it, no matter what it is, if we love one another. Because we're a family. We're the family of God at Ephesus Church in Rankin, Georgia. May God bless us to be a church characterized by love for Him, by love for one another, and by love for this community around us who need the good news of His gospel as we did. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You did love us when we were unlovable. We thank You, God, that You called us out of darkness, that we have passed from death to life. And we know that all of that, God, is an act of Your sovereign love. And we thank You for that. We pray, God, that You would help each one of us each marriage, Father, each family to love one another more, to put, put others above them, ourselves. Father, that does not come natural to us. And I pray that you would give us the grace to overcome our flesh and to walk in obedience by faith in your written word. And because, God, we want you to be above all else glorified in our actions. 
that this community will know that you are a great and merciful king. Use us to do that, Father. Use us to expand your kingdom in this community. We give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.